Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. You are joining us, well not live because it's a podcast, but today is Friday, January 15th. We're very excited to be here with you. It's a much different tone than it was last week when we recorded our show. Scott, um, how do you feel today given it's it's been a week and a half since the the siege on the U.S. Capitol? I am apprehensive. That's probably my, um, probably the best word. You know, I think, um, I think it, I think it has been easy. Um, it's easy on social media and in person sometimes to kind of, you know, look at some of the stories and see some of the things that we saw happen at the Capitol last week and think like, what the hell? Like this is, you know, and almost think, I almost find some of it comical in its absurdity, but you also see that the more information we come out about what happened on January the 6th, the more reporting there is about what was actually taking place in the Capitol, the more it becomes clear how serious um, a breach of security this was, how um, clear and present a danger um, it presented to uh, members of Congress, to members of the executive, including the vice president. Um, And how close uh, we were to seeing, um, I mean, as bad as it is to have five people killed, um, how close we were to seeing um, something a lot worse than that. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about needing to tone down rhetoric. Um, I am apprehensive that we're going to see more political violence before we see less. So I guess my mood is somber. Andy. That's, that's <laughs> fair. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and yeah, I, I agree. Obviously, we don't have to talk about this a whole lot uh, because I'm sure many of our listeners have, like us, been reading and watching the essentially wall-to-wall coverage of this over the past week and a half. I will note two things that are worth noting. One is, uh, folks, just avoid any state or federal office building for the next few days if you can, right? And I have friends in other states that work in federal buildings that have been asked or told to not come into work. That's the case here as well. Even to the extent that the head of the Oklahoma Second Amendment Association encouraged their members to not show up to the Capitol. And you know stuff is bad when the people that normally want you out there with your guns are telling you to stay home. Uh, and so that's a that's a big shift, I think, in the rhetoric already. And because of that, if those guys are saying to stay home, I am nervous about the folks who are choosing to go out anyway. Secondly, the other thing that I will say of note before I kick it over to Bailey. Well, Andy, that, oh, go ahead. Uh, as I since the last uh, the last episode is that the president has been impeached again. So um, that's a major development, I guess, in you know our uh, national political field. We don't talk a lot about national politics on the show, but it's worth noting for posterity that in the past week, we've we've had that happen for the first time in history that the president has been impeached twice. Um, so of, I believe of all the impeachments in history, President Trump has half, right? It's only happened like four times and he's got two. So there's that. Bailey, I'm That's sorry. True. Hello, welcome to the show. What were you going to say? Yeah, I think there's there's two things that connect what we're talking about to Oklahoma. Uh, one thing that we're seeing is some suppressed anger that people are feeling. One of the things that happened as well, in addition to impeachment, you saw the response from many businesses and particularly technology platforms who have chosen to permanently block the president from using certain platforms. And they've been cracking down on um, the people who believe in the Q conspiracy. And so people were going to um, applications like Parler to share their far right viewpoints and frustrations and they were using that to organize 
And now that mechanism has basically been taken from them because Apple and Google and every tech company said, we're not going to support this platform. And so there's a lot of people who don't have a place to share their frustrations or organize the way they did before. And so I think that further elevates your warning, Andy, that like things can be dangerous. Because sometimes if people can get an outlet, write it out, be done with it, they can say it out loud. But now there's no outlet for people <laughs> who have this frustration that they've been jibbed by the government, that the government's trying to take their rights, that they're trying to silence the person that they showed up for the Capitol for, right? And mm-hmm. so um, that's something to be cautious of. And then it ties to Oklahoma because we have a very significant portion of our population who believes in the conspiracy theories and supports President Trump. And so even among our legislature, you know, there were nearly 40 members who signed on to a letter saying that different states needed their um, elections reviewed and return, overturning results and things like that. And so with the second impeachment and then Democrats having control of all branches, especially the Senate, so there's a likelihood that the impeachment trials will move forth quickly you're going to of what's happening at the federal level but from the lens of like a backlash so i wonder even how much business is going to get done this session because there's going to be so much talking about um, the democrats in dc um, talking about standing up for trump um, standing up for our country and so what is this going to look like going into 2021 even looking at state and local politics. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. You know, I um, I don't know that we will see the Senate take up the impeachment trial right away, if at all, uh, because they the Democrats don't have the votes to convict President Trump. So McConnell said he's not going to do it before Trump leaves office. And then afterwards, they're coming in having to deal with... <laughs> an impeachment trial, uh, a vaccine response that's, as we saw today, there is there is no uh, back office storage of vaccine. Um, so that's a big issue. And then the COVID relief itself. And those are enormous. All three are huge tasks that require a lot of political glad handing and a lot of backroom deals and just a lot of work to get through. And so they can't possibly do them all three at the same time, aside from all the other, you know, transition and governing stuff. And so I wouldn't be surprised myself if the impeachment trial gets gets uh, delayed or even held off because at least for the next week, there's a few things that are outstanding, right? Will President Trump attempt to pardon himself? Is that constitutional or not? Um, if he does, and if he doesn't, Will there be criminal cases that are coming out against him from all these investigations that might hit afterwards? I can see the Democratic majority in the Senate saying, you know what, we're not even going to mess with it. Uh, We'll hold it over their heads, but we'll let some other court take it up first and and see if they can deal with that while we deal with getting this COVID relief pushed through. Those are my two I, I think that's an I think that's a good point, Andy. I think there I would say I think there's a real possibility. There is a real possibility that they actually don't have a trial in the Senate. I mean, that could be totally wrong, but I think that's possible. I do think though it hinges I I think I think whether they have a trial and what happens in the trial hinges almost entirely on uh one man. Uh one one guy, one dude. Uh senator from the state of Kentucky, uh Mitch McConnell. Um, there's a story in the New York times yesterday. I think yesterday, yeah. the day before that says <clears throat> Senator McConnell, who's currently Senator majority leader until December, until January 20th, uh, says that he is glad that Trump has been impeached. Uh, this is of course all on background anonymous sources. He says he's glad that Trump has been impeached because it will make him easier to make it easier to purge him from the Republican party. 
And I think that's kind of a, to me, that's kind of a trial balloon. He wants to see what the response to that is. If, if leader McConnell and other people of similar stature in the Republican party think that the best thing electorally for Republicans in the future is to try and rib the, rid the party of Trumpism. And they think that impeachment and conviction in the Senate is a way to do that. Then I think, I think it happens right now, assuming that every Democrat and soon to be vice president Harris voted to impeach, that's 51 votes, which means you need 16 Republicans to join you. Assuming that Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Pat Toomey, Mitt Romney um, all voted yes in agreement with Democrats, that's four. So now you need, what, 14 more? I think if you don't have Mitch McConnell, it's really hard to come up with 14. But if Mitch McConnell decides he's going to vote to convict Trump, which according to follow-up reporting in the Times today, he says he hasn't made his mind up on, I think if Mitch McConnell votes to convict the president, I think you get to 14 a lot easier. I have yeah. no idea. Well, I, I have no idea if that will happen. Um, but I think it's I, – I, I wouldn't be shocked either way. I wouldn't be shocked if there is no trial and just he's impeached and that's the end of it. I also would not be shocked if there's a trial and he's convicted because uh, some some of the higher-ups in the in – the, national republican party decided that that's what's best for the party moving forward yeah interesting well so well, all I that to say take. so what I, I think two things hinge upon whether there'll be a trial it depends on what's happening among public pressure and public opinion over the next couple weeks I think there's strong momentum among the Democratic base and even Republicans who are frustrated at what happened at our nation's capital. There could be enough pressure to make Democrats prioritize an impeachment trial. Um, and it could be an opportunity for Democrats to put Republicans in the hot seat, right? Um, because the advantage would be in their court to say, look, we're going to immediately have a trial because what has happened under this past administration is unacceptable and we want immediate justice for, you know, the lives lost at the Capitol and the destruction at the Capitol and, and all of that. And then it puts Republicans on the spot to decide whether or not they're going to stand for democracy or not. Um, I think another element would be what type of politicking would be happening around this time as well, because it also gives Democrats um, an upper hand for negotiations, because maybe they may say we won't pursue uh, impeachment trial if you will support XYZ in whatever package they're trying to do next and, you know, coronavirus relief or because uh, there's even conversations that Democrats want to take up raising the minimum wage, right? And so um, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see what becomes a priority within um, the next 100 days. Um, well, I totally agree. Of COVID relief plus where the energy is for impeachment trial. And I wonder too, Bailey, to your to your point that that Dems can put can Dems Dems can put the Republicans in an uncomfortable position of having to take, you know, what could be a, a very difficult vote for some of them, whether they vote for or against convicting the president. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about, about, you know, unity and coming together. Um, currently there are not 60 votes in the Senate to do a lot of the things that Dems want to do, like raising the minimum wage. I have no idea. I don't know enough about the inner workings of the, of Senate politics to know if this is feasible or not, but I wonder if, I wonder if the impeachment and the question of whether or not to have a trial for the president gives the Dems any leverage over some of their more moderate Republican counterparts to say, hey, um, maybe we don't have an impeachment trial, but maybe you vote with us to uh, uh, raise the minimum wage, right? Maybe you help us with some of our priorities. I have, I have, you know, we could, we we could, and many people do, have entire podcast series that are about nothing but uh, nothing, nothing but these issues. But we do have um, we do have a, a session uh, a session here that will will resume on February the first. So 
should we should we transition to what's happening there? The or state. we can keep talking about stuff happening in DC because I can. I I'm I'm good either way. We should, we have to have a spinoff podcast <laughs> just about national stuff at some point. Um, uh, so bef- yeah, we, so today we're going to talk about a, a general overview of the Oklahoma state legislative session, how it happens, you know, the process and procedures for any of our listeners who may be new to the process or have forgotten. Right, we've been doing this for five years, so we've got a few things figured out. Um, although it seems to be you know, new and exciting every year. but And we're going to talk about our predictions for what we think might happen. And before we get there, though, um, I do want to talk about one other current event, um, perhaps the most notable thing in state politics that happened this week in Oklahoma, and that's that Governor Stitt um, rolled out a big plan and had a press conference and called for all students, you know, K through 12, to return to in-person instruction. Now, this uh, this call was based on, he cited some data from a study in North Carolina um, that that study indicated that out of, I don't think, 32,000 students that were going to school in person, um, or I don't know how many thousand, but there was only like 32 cases of COVID transmission and none between students and adults um, that they noted from their contact tracing. Now, swiftly on the response to this, right? Like the the is was an American Academy of Pediatrics study, but the the state chapter of the AAP, um, as well as OEA and State Superintendent jo- Joy Hoffmeister and a bunch of other folks, and the the author of the study in question. That's right. <laughs> oh, you stole my thunder, but that's exactly right. Yeah. So these people all came out and said, "Oh, hang on, homie." that study only works if you have all of these other community transmission things in place, such as universal masking across the whole state and a bunch of other stuff. And guess what he won't do. Right. Which we won't do. We do not have, and we won't do it. Yeah. And then, and so everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But then when I saw that the author of the study was like, no, this is wrong. You, (laughs) I have been misquoted. I have, this is applying my stuff incorrectly. I was like that in order for the studies author to even get wind of this and then take the time to respond. I felt like it was a big deal. Uh, and so that has continued to roll out. I, I, even as we speak on Twitter, people are, are talking about it. Uh, Scott, of course, I wanted to go to you as a physician and pediatrician. And I think we know how you stand on mask mandates and probably on the governor's response, but specifically about this, what stood out to you most so, you know, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, there is a, there's a, a I, I did not participate in, but I, I lurked on a Facebook conversation between several doctors about this earlier this week. And it's interesting because they're actually, I mean, there is some compelling data about, I mean, one, we know that we know, I think everybody knows people that are no matter what side of this particular issue you're on, that the best place for kids to learn ideally is in school or at the very least that that parents should have have the have the ability for their kids to go to school that's what would be ideal for the kids for the parents for everybody concerned right so there's no question there but the question is how do you do that in a way that's safe for the kids and that's safe for the parents and the study as you mentioned it does show that there's much less transmission in schools than you would think provided that community transmission is much lower than it appears to be in oklahoma so comparing the study in North Carolina to what's happening in Oklahoma is is not only like apples and oranges, it's like apples and, you know, like dogs or something, right? I don't know. Like two, you're looking at kind of two two different things. The third thing I would say is, is that it, while it is true that you don't see the rate of transmission um, in, in kids and in, in as severe de- disease in kids as you do in adults, most of the time, we are seeing an increase in severe disease in children, particularly not from the COVID itself, but from this post-COVID condition called MISC, which is an inflammatory condition that causes a systemic organ failure, multi-system organ failure, shock, can put kids in the ICU, can put kids on ventilators, it has cardiac implications. Um, it's really a very severe condition, and we are seeing a ton of that in Oklahoma right now. I, I mean, a ton is, is relative. We're seeing a significant increase of MISC in children 
um, as a post COVID syndrome now compared to where we were a few months ago. So again, my, my takeaway is that like one, it's, it's not you, anytime you look at a study like this, the first thing that one of the first things that you learn when you're learning critical appraisal in medical school and in residency is you take the, you take the, the piece of literature in question and you ask, does this apply to like my patients or my practice or the setting that I'm in, right? If I treat only people that are 65 and older and the study's done and people that are 10 to 12, that's not going to be translatable. And so this is a classic case of taking a study that was done under very specific conditions and putting it in conditions that are not similar at all and saying, see, we can do this here. Um, so that's, I don't know, does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, it does, Scott. And I think, you know, when that study was released and even when the governor cited it, everyone was like, well, Okay, this is potentially good news, but that's exactly right that we do not have anywhere near the uh, the um, control on community spread in Oklahoma that would be necessary for this plan to work. And the, to me, the thing that stands out the most and is that of of many <laughs> is that they didn't even consult with the Department of Education, right? Joy Hoffmeister not, was not- Yeah, I was say not even just the Department of Education, but like the, the, the elected state superintendent right. who oversees education and calls the shots on things. And so it's like the governor, the governor doesn't have the magic wand to say schools, you're gonna do X, Y, Z. And so, at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's really ironic that like, there's one hand of like local control that conservatives preach, but then there's this moment where it's like, well, we want you to do this thing. And so then local control says, as far as like our elected um, school boards and um, like superintendents of individual school districts and our state superintendent, then get to say, mm, thanks for the information, but no. <laughs> yeah, well, and there's a there's a Twitter account. It's like a spoof account called uh, Oklahoma Gov. Just Googled. It's Gov Stit Googled, and it they tweet often. I don't know who runs it, um, but often it's pretty funny. And uh, just a few minutes ago, they tweeted how to make opening schools a political issue. Um, which is funny because that, you know, his office has put out some statements that's like, uh, well, we're sad that, you know, they've made this into a, a political issue. And I'm like, okay, first of all, it's the governor who doesn't, I don't think he has, he's overstepping his authority in this by trying to mandate schools do something by going around another official that was elected in the same election, um, who many people have rumored may run against him in the next uh, gubernatorial election. And I was like, I just, it just seems it's bad form. And I feel like it's politically unwise. Agreed. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, but I'll add that like, even around this time last year, we were talking about how the governor picks political fights among different branches and yes. state agencies. And so this is just, another example because it was fights with the legislature you know on budgetary things and then it's fights with the tribes and then it's fights with you know this agency and now i guess the fight has turned um to public education from selections of who he's appointing to the state um boards that oversee you know certain things like charter schools and other things and now it's um this battle uh, directly with schools trying to, you know, strong arm them into opening their doors. And so this is just really interesting of how he's picking these political fights as governor. Well, I think he wants to appoint the, the secretary of education or that uh, the state superintendent, right? Like if it's up to him, he would be able to appoint all the agency heads and all the department heads. Well, I mean, let's be honest. If it was up to him, he wouldn't have to deal with pesky things like courts and state legislators and, you know, like he he's he's a business guy. He's a CEO. 
And he's used to being able to say, no, I want to do it this way. And that's the way we do it because this is my company and that's what I decided. Right. And he seems to still be frustrated by the fact that that's not the way the government works. He wants to be able to say, no, I'm, I'm ordering it today. I am deciding we are opening schools. Right. Um, and he's frustrated that he can't do that. So, um, you know, I think he is probably working behind the scenes to try and get the state board of education to mandate to individual school districts that they have to offer in-person instruction. It seems pretty clear. That's what he's, uh, kind of uh, uh, working on uh, in the, you know, the so-called the back channels, um, whether that'll happen or not, I don't know. Well, well and public I- education is such an interesting issue in Oklahoma because it's often not a Republican Democrat issue. It's a rural urban issue um, because every rural district loves its school and they want to do everything to protect that school and they trust their superintendents in their community. So there's just a lot of power among local schools. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this shakes out because even when it comes to um, go in person versus going virtual versus hybrid, you know, you're seeing breakdowns like rural urban (laughs) for the most part. And so um, it'll be interesting to see, um, where even like the legislature will stand on the issues of whether schools need to go back full time or whether schools should have the autonomy to make the decision. Yeah, I was going to say that I think the urban rural line is also at play in this. I think it's a I think it maybe the governor angling to help solidify his rural support because Oklahoma City public schools and Tulsa public schools both have are are still doing virtual and um by and large and he's i think he's pissed that they won't do what he wants because uh, uh superintendent yeah. mcdaniel from oklahoma city public schools had a a statement the other day in opposition to the governor's um call for the in-person instruction as well and it's everything sucks and um and i think in, in response to our lack of control over this virus, people at all levels, individually in our own lives and the governor for the state uh, and for his political future are trying to control whatever they possibly can. And it doesn't always work out. Speaking of the governor trying to control everything that he possibly can, uh, <laughs> we've talked um, at some length about his uh executive order decision whatever you want to call it to move the public health lab from uh oklahoma city to oklahoma city to tulsa well at the time that that was several uh, to still water excuse me several in the legislature were not pleased with that um and as of this week representative ryan martinez a republican of edmund has filed legislation to say uh nope we're not gonna we're not going to do that anymore. So Representative Martinez has legislation that would uh, specify that no state asset is to be moved further than 10 miles from wherever it was located on July 1st, 2020, without the approval of the Oklahoma State Legislature. Okay, so it would apply to the public health lab. I wasn't sure if it was just henceforth, all things moving forward, or if it was backdated to apply to that. Yeah. So how, um, how much money have we already spent on this deal? And he's spending CARES money on that. I mean, I mean, yeah, who who knows? And then, of course, the question is, is this going to pass with a veto-proof majority? Because otherwise, the governor can just be like, no, I don't like this rule, and veto the bill, right? Like, I'm sure it will. Because I, you're going to have bipartisan support for this, right? The Democrats aren't going to want it to happen, and the Republicans aren't either. That's why they got Ryan Martinez to run it. Um, I also don't know... I don't know from the article I saw if it's going to have a... Uh, if it's going to have an emergency in place, because if it does, it won't take effect until November 1st of next year. Right. Of this year. If, yeah. it, if, if it does not have an emergency. Right. In place. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. So it'll, it would be down to the governor trying to rush to get it built in some kind of pole barn or something up there, I guess. <laughs> Which I don't is strange because if the goal is to stop the governor from spending money in this way, why not put an emergency to make it immediate? Yeah, surely they, they will. 
Yeah, I mean, one would one would one would think, but it doesn't say in the in the press release that I saw whether there's going to be an emergency there or not. So that's you know we've talked about what we think is going to happen in session this year. Um, that's clearly one thing that's going to happen in session uh, in session this year. Um, what else have have you guys seen any other any other bills? Um, so just a, a couple of bills. But before we talk about bills, let's talk about process for any of our listeners who are new. And if you are, hello and welcome. This is Let's Pod This. My name is Andy. Scott and Bailey are here as well. Let's talk about how sausage gets made. So the state legislative session starts February 1st. It's always the first Monday of February. And this is a new legislature. So any bills that were filed last year are dead and they had to start over in this in this process. For That's this right. We go with a two-year legislature right between elections. So this is the first regular session of the 58th Oklahoma legislature. It will begin at noon on the 1st, and it kicks off with a joint session, which I don't know how they're going to do it, but normally everyone's in the House chamber. I don't know if they're going to do the same because of COVID this year, but they do that. Oh, they are. They're going to have the Senate up in the gallery, I think. Um, and so they gavel in um, and they do the first reading of all the bills, which basically means all the bills are now into the chambers. And then the governor comes over and delivers his state of the state address. And so we uh, will do something. We'll either do a live blog or something. That's what we've done in the past. Usually we're there and we live tweet it. Maybe we'll do that too. But um with our success from our live blog on election night, maybe we can do that. Um, it's usually pretty interesting um, to hear the governor's priorities for what he wants to see happen this year. Uh, and then immediately following the legislature throws it out and they do whatever they want. Right. Like, is that how it happens pretty much? Yes. Uh, I think that is, that is pretty much what happens is that the governor, the governor says, uh, here are the things that I think are important. Here's what I, and here's what I would like us to focus on. The legislature says, Oh, thank you, Governor. Clap, clap, clap. Uh, we have our own plans and designs. Uh, see you in May. Right. But it's like, uh, so it's a mini version of the State of the Union address where uh, this is just the governor talking about the state, um, his plans. He gives a status update to the legislature and to the people. And then he lays out his agenda for um, for the year. And then, and then he leaves and everyone discusses it for the rest of the day. When it comes to lawmaking and the legislative process, uh, a few terms that I'll identify real quick, and Bailey, you can chime in um, as needed along the way. There are every bill it has to be read three times. The first reading happens on day one. That's just that means all the bills that have been filed have been first read, and that allows them to be eligible to be assigned to a committee. They don't actually read the bills aloud. There are there will be thousands of them, likely somewhere around 3,200 to 3,500 bills, maybe as many as 4,000 since last year was uh, a short session. So we'll see what happens. But all that will be first read, and then the bills will be assigned to committees. It doesn't all happen on day one. It'll happen over a period of days. But the committee meetings will start, I think, on day one for the most part, and they will start hearing some of these bills uh, as bills move through committee. Then they can move to the floor, and then um, they will hear them there. And then once and that's once they're heard on the floor, that's third reading, right? And then they can be voted on, approved, or, or not. Uh, and if and then it goes to the opposite chamber. Goes the opposite chamber, right? And, and then, then the same, the same process starts over. So they go to the committee over there. So then the whole process starts over. They go through whole the whole rigmarole again. That's right. Well, and I and told eventually. people that it's almost like watching your favorite elimination game show, like watching like American Idol, where you know you start with all the people in all these communities trying to be the next American Idol. But then, you know, months later, you only see, you know, a few dozen people actually make it to Hollywood, right? 
because it's all these levels of consideration. And so I think legislative process is just like that. So yes, next week by next Friday, because that's the bill uh, deadline for members to be able to put text in their bills, you're going to see like over 3,500 bills. But it doesn't mean that all 3,500 are going to advance through this process. Some of them are going to get, you know, eliminated or at least put on hold to be considered maybe next year. <laughs> and, and even then, they probably won't be considered next year. Um, but they'll just be put on hold um, to move up through the process. I think um, only like 6% of bills last session actually made it into law or got to at least to the governor's desk. And that was only because we were in a weird time with coronavirus. So even things that they probably wanted to work on, they probably had to put towards the back burner to quickly get members, you know, out of the building and adjourn. And so um, from what we hear, leadership is saying, like members like uh, President Pro Tem Treat, that they're going to prioritize legislation to say, does this thing really need to be heard this year? Or why does this bill need to be heard this year? Um, so we may even see fewer bills move through the process. I mean, they say that, Bailey, and I hope that that's true. But I feel like every year they say that they're going to do that. They're going to prioritize those bills. And every year, like the first 10 bills out of the gate are guns, abortion, and, you know, maybe something else with guns and abortion. Like it, se- it seems like the first priority every year is always some some bill that you know um is is some kind of like social wedge issue that that you know is really important to the majority and and they and they do that in the first three weeks and then they start something else maybe it'll be different this year i know they've said that they're going to make uh open meetings a priority for the first uh for the first couple weeks of session uh uh exemptions to the open meetings act allowing uh, allowing state boards and committees to meet, vir- meet virtually i think is hugely important um I'll, i'm curious to see what else is uh is a priority coming out of the gate yeah yeah i think that'll be interesting and that legitimately needs to be done it's a shame that they waited this long they could have they could have done a quick special session on that um but I think given the everything else going on, that would probably wouldn't have been that quick. Um, so I'm optimistic they get that done. While we've been recording, I, I happen to see on Twitter that Senator Rob Standridge from Norman has filed a bill um, that addresses what he calls censorship on social media. Now, of course, this is a, uh, stemming from the as Bailey mentioned earlier the president being um, kicked off of Twitter and Facebook uh, Standridge compared these actions to the thought purge in Nazi Germany which is a absolutely terrible and insensitive <laughs> comparison um, and basically it would say if if Twitter or any other social media um, account or a company deletes, um, your posts that they would be civilly liable for up to $75,000 per intentional deletion or censoring. Isn't now, it wild that like free market and private businesses exist until moments like this? That's exactly right. The I will say it again, as I'm sure our listeners know, the first amendment does not apply to private businesses, right? It does not mean that you cannot face consequences for shooting your mouth off. The First Amendment protects you from the government silencing you, right? And in this case, it's almost the reverse. So um, I, as listeners know, I'm also the director of the Freedom of Information Oklahoma, which is a First Amendment and Open Records Act, Open Meeting Act organization. We don't yet have a statement, but uh, I expect we will because this is ridiculous. Like, first of all, when you sign up for Twitter or Facebook or whatever, you agree to the terms and conditions. You likely choose not to read it, which is at your own peril, but you agree to their, to their rules. One of which is they don't have to let you post hateful stuff. Right. And this happens all the time. So uh, I expect that bill won't even be heard, but it's uh, it's good fodder for a Friday afternoon on, you know, news cycle, I guess. 
Well, it's also a good reminder too to our listeners that just because something advances um, in committee doesn't mean that it's going to make it all the way to the governor's desk. Sometimes there's political strategies that happen to where um, members of leadership will allow something to make it through a subcommittee and make it to a committee, but will block it on the, or it may pass all the way to the house floor just to allow that member or the Senate floor to make a, to make a statement to say, look what we did. And then they won't let it go from there. Right. And so you never know it's a hit or miss. So hopefully it's one of those bills that won't get traction. But if it does, I don't foresee it being one of the ones that go to Governor Stitt's desk and get signed in the law because every experienced lawmaker knows that that just sets up the state of Oklahoma for a good lawsuit. Yeah, same thing with that local control bill, right, that uh, Senator Dom filed that basically said it, the bill seeks to prevent cities or municipalities from having mask mandates um and and it but it has to go through health and human services committee which is chaired by friend of the pod senator greg mccourtney who used to be mayor of ada and is a staunch proponent of local control and he has all but said that bill's not even getting heard in my committee so yeah, yeah. And it's the same people that every year right it's always senator dom standridge these guys that file these ridiculous bills he said at some point, uh, Senator McCourtney said, he said, at some point, every session, local control is one of the hills I end up dying on. <laughs> like, it's like, that's never going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Scott and Bailey, aside from bills we've seen uh, that have been filed, what's your gut tell you? Like, what are the things you're going to be watching out for? What do you think is going to happen this year? Um, I... I'm going to be interested to see if the legislature does anything to change or to try and change the way Oklahoma, um, how we conduct our elections, if there's anything um, that they try to change in terms of how we register voters, if there's anything that they try to change in terms of how our electoral votes are distributed, if they try to change it so that Oklahoma's electoral college votes are distributed based on congressional district rather than the winner of the popular vote in the state. Um, I just, there hasn't, I haven't heard any, like, I haven't heard any inklings of that. I don't know anything. I have, I haven't heard anybody's running any of those kind of bills, but you're seeing a lot of these pop up in legislatures across, uh, across the country. Um, um, trying to, modify the weights modify the way states award their electoral votes there's some in West there's a, a bill in Wisconsin and I think maybe another one in Michigan um, that would uh, change the way that those states award their electoral votes currently there's two states Maine and Nebraska who have electoral votes that are awarded based on a congressional district um, and I'm curious to see if any other states specifically ours, follows that right because that would be you know i don't i don't think that they would uh, because right now i mean the 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 republicans are a lock to win oklahoma um uh, at the presidential level and the republican nominee will get all of oklahoma's electoral votes um i don't know do you, do you see what i'm saying like that's that's something i'm just curious to see if any of those kind of discussions pop up i think i agree with you on that I'm, i'll be watching that too I mean, for me, the I'm going to be watching, aside from the budget, um, I'm going to be watching for some bills that have already been proposed and others that I expect that will be uh, essentially uh, an attack on or an attempt to restrict the initiative petition process. And to me, this is a, an attempt to restrict democ direct democracy. This is um, the legislature trying to say, hey, we don't want the people to pass their own laws. We want everything to come through us. Um, and so, the, which is funny because, you know, they clamp down on the governor for trying to do things because they want everything to flow through them. They also want all of this. Uh, and as listeners have heard me say before, and I will say again, the framers of our state constitution specifically included this as the first right granted to Oklahomans, the right to petition their government 
because they knew then, just as we know now, that there are, we can't uh, always count on the our politicians to do the right or the best thing because either they don't want to or the unique politics of that building prevent them from doing it for one reason or another. Um, and this is how we get stuff done, right? This they While they're caught up in uh, politicking, the people sometimes are like, listen, you know, we need insurance. We need medical marijuana. We need criminal justice reform. These are all uh, measures that happen out here. And so we'll see what happens with that. That's going to be pretty high on my list um, for things to watch out for. Bailey, what about you? I will be interested to see. Sorry, my garage is going up, y'all. So um, my birthday was yesterday. and uh, Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. So I have some things going on. So um, I will be interested to see um, what happens with Medicaid expansion. Uh, we know that the voters passed um, Medicaid expansion. Oh, it feels like forever ago now. <laughs> um, but last year and the legislature proposed a mechanism to fund Medicaid expansion, but that didn't um, pass. And so now the legislature, in addition to funding um, needs for the state, because we have faced a difficult time um, economically with the hit of the pandemic, they'll also have to balance um, how we're going to pay for Medicaid expansion, especially with uh, the rise in the number of people who now need services. So um, it'll be interesting to see where they pull that money from, because there's even conversations of using Medicaid as a way to pay for Medicaid. And so, um, yeah, and Bailey, I think one thing that's going to be crucial there is what happens at the national level. You know, Vice President Biden um, has unveiled his uh, the part one of his like economic recovery act um, that includes substantial aid to state and local governments to help fill in their budgets. And there's talk that there'll be more of that uh, in the future, assuming it can run the gauntlet of the Congress. Um, and so I'm curious to see, I'm curious to see how I'm curious to see what happens there. And I'm curious to see if local elected leaders here, you know, state legislators, you know, state, state representatives, state senators, um, even if they're in the majority party, I'm curious if they lobby our our federal delegation at all to vote for um, some of the Biden's uh, administration's stimulus plans because that will make their job easier, right? Like if the feds write Oklahoma a big check um, to help cover lost revenue from uh, the COVID pandemic, that makes the job of the state legislature way easier in terms of funding things like um, Medicaid expansion or you know, uh, COVID, per, you know, we're trying to get schools open if they have to uh, uh, provide additional monies to schools for COVID precaution or sanitation or, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's, that's an, that's an interplay of the state and local that I'm interested in. Yeah. So as we um, kind of wind down the episode here, I think it's, um, Important to know, listeners, if you are interested in tracking legislation yourself, there's a few ways you can do it. Um, one is on the state legislature's website. They have a, a product called Lens. It's like a legislative tracking system. Uh, I haven't really used it that much, but I just signed up for it this morning, and I'm going to be making a video about it here early next week. Uh, and so hopefully by the time we next record, I'll have it out there on our YouTube channel um, and I will certainly share it on our Twitter and our email list. So be sure you follow and sign up for that. Uh, and then also in years past, we have used Legiscan, which is there's a free version of that as well to track legislation. It's pretty helpful. Uh, eCapital has a legislative tracking, legislation tracking system that is a subscription-based thing. Um, I hear it's great. I can't afford it. Um, but those are all great ways. Also, if you are interested about any specific bill um, and you want to know, like, how can I find, you know, what are the important 
budget bills or the important criminal justice bills or the, you know, what bills are going to affect the rights of women. Um, my guidance has always been to contact the organizations that work in that area most, right? So if it's like bills that affect women, my go-to call would be um, to Liz Charles at the Oklahoma Women's Coalition, right? Um, if it's stuff to deal with children, then the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy. Tax and budget stuff, okay policy, right? Like there's there's a bunch of organizations out there that track this stuff. Education, OEA, or any of the other bajillion education <laughs> groups out there. Um, and if you're not sure who to ask, then ask us, and we'll try to point you in the right direction. I think it's important to remind our listeners that there's an election coming up in the next few weeks um, for our um, Board of Education primary. <laughs> and so today, like in the next 50 minutes, if you haven't registered to vote yet for that election, you need to get registered. Um, but it's not too late to sign up for absentee ballot if you don't have that yet for the school board races. And so I know OKCPS will be... Um, there are three people running for chair of the Oklahoma City Public Schools Board, and then there'll be seven, several other school districts that will be um, having school board races, and that will be February 9th. That's right. Also in February will be city council elections for Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and a whole bunch of other cities. Like statewide, it's a municipal election. So again, you know, just because November's passed doesn't mean that elections stop here in Oklahoma. We have elections nearly every month. You can go to the election board website, elections.ok.gov, and sign up for election reminders. They will email you and text you if you have an election coming up. You can also register. Uh, you have to sign up again. It's a new year for your absentee ballots. I got mine in the mail for that school board runoff that Bailey just mentioned. Um, so you can still vote safely by mail if you would like, um, or you can use it just as a reminder to go vote in person. Um, those are that option is out there. So yeah, we are right back in it. I'm excited about these school board and city council elections. I think um, that you know that local government, right? All all politics is local, and this kind of stuff can have huge impacts on how things are going. In fact, my sister lives in Bethany, and she texted me yesterday that she is volunteering for someone running for mayor of Bethany. Uh, she has. I, I will say she's been inspired by me. I don't know that that's true, but um, she is uh, going to be stepping into an actual campaign role uh, and helping coordinate volunteers and get out the vote for the city of Bethany, which is, I think, super exciting. So good for her and good for you if you're someone that likes to be involved like that. Please do. All right, folks. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for being here. Happy January. Um, enjoy watching the uh, inauguration next week. It's on next Wednesday. Please feel free to tune that in. I'm sure it'll be streaming on literally every station and channel out there. And we will be back next week with a rundown of all the bills that have been filed this session that we think are interesting, notable, or outrageous. It's always a good time. Have a great week. Never, 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 never,